good to see all of you here this morning. If you're a guest today, we're delighted that you're here. If you're worshiping with us online, we're delighted that you're worshiping with us uh, via the internet as well. And we're in a series called On Target. Uh, this is the third in the series. Uh, the last two Sunday, or Sundays, we've been laying down some principles of if the church is going to be on target with where God wants us to be and doing what God wants us to do, then there are certain foundational principles that we need to understand. The first one we talked about two weeks ago, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, that's the bullseye of the target. We missed that one. We might as well just shut everything else down because nothing else matters. We're not going to get the rest of the, of the principles. Last week, we talked about the principle of compassion, this gut-wrenching response that compels us to take action on another's behalf. Compassion is an intense feeling that cannot be ignored. Peter Ustinov said, charity is more common than compassion. Charity is tax deductible. Compassion is time consuming. You see, compassion goes above and beyond. This morning, we're going to take a look at the third principle that you and I, I believe, probably need to have a better understanding of. We may think we understand it, but I suspect that we don't really understand it like we should. This, I got to tell you, is a challenging message for me to prepare this week. There are just a lot of things. I was trying to figure out how to put all of this down because poverty is a really difficult issue to deal with. Now, when I say the word poverty, what's the first image that comes to your mind when you hear that word? Uh, we're going to show you some slides uh, on the screen. Most of these pictures you've probably seen in commercials on television are pictures similar to it that for us would describe poverty. Now, do you know what goes through my mind when I see these kinds of pictures, on, especially on a television commercial? My first response is, I wish I could do something to help make a genuine difference. But these people are halfway around the world, and, and, and even if I went there, what could I do? And if I did something, it would be only a drop in a bucket. And by the way, how much is this organization who's asking for my money spending on a television commercial in order to get my money? I mean, are they reputable? Will they really use this money? Will any of my gift make it to the person who is really suffering or really in need? And by the time I've wrestled with those questions, I've sort of assuaged my guilt and, and I can go on with life and not think about it anymore. Some of the research does bear out the fact that uh, some poverty aid organizations spend as much as 50% of the gift on administration and advertising. Some do very well, but some are not. And so, the, you know, it is important, it is imperative that we know where we're giving our money. I've, I've witnessed poverty in different countries and seen it like I have never seen it anywhere here in the United States and the good news, I, I think, for us here at home is that the mission groups that we support do a phenomenal job of helping meet the need in the countries where they're located. Uh, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, Central India Christian Mission, North India Christian Mission, they do a terrific job of reaching out with what monies they receive and making the most of that investment to help people who are suffering, people who are poverty-stricken like we can't even begin to imagine, and they do it in such a way that it, it is helpful, not hurtful. 
why, why do you think that Brad leads short-term mission trips? Uh, the, many of our congregation go, number one, to be an encouragement to those people who are there making a difference. But the second reason is to make sure that what we are entrusting to them is being used wisely and carefully so that the gifts that you give and entrust to God's kingdom here can make a genuine difference around the world in the kingdom. Now, why this topic? Well, the, the answer is simple. Until we address the issue of poverty from a biblical perspective, it will be difficult to fulfill the second part of the great commandment. The first part, you know, of the great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second part is, and love your neighbor as yourself. How can we love our neighbor as we ought if we do not understand the issue of suffering? Now, let me say before I go any farther, by our common concept of material poverty, I have never been poor. Have we ever had to watch our pennies? Oh, yeah, sure. And, and we've lived and operated off of a budget all of our, our married life. Have I ever done without? Just the things I wanted. I've never been hungry. I, I've never had enough clothes. I've always had more clothes than I really need. I've never been so cold that I couldn't get warm. I've always had a roof of some kind over my head. I have never known poverty. And I would guess that for most of us in that room, the same thing could be said. And I realize that all of us are at different economic strata in this room. And, and probably for some of you, it may be a week-to-week -week or day-to-day -day existence. But when you compare our culture to the third world countries where there is so much poverty, all of us in this room would be considered rich. Now, I cannot speak, I suspect you cannot speak, or relate to this from experience. But that doesn't mean we can't try to learn and understand better what this whole issue of poverty is about. So, I want us to take a look at some important biblical lessons on this subject this morning because it's a part of us learning how to be on target for God. And the first thing I want to, to, to examine this morning, first lesson is the issue of poverty matters to God. Psalm 146, verse 7 and following. He gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners among us. He cares for the orphans and widows, but he frustrates the plans of the wicked. According to author and preacher Rick Warren, there are 2,000, 2,000 verses of Scripture that deal with the issue of poverty or being poor. 2,000. Now, I got I to admit, I didn't go through all 2,000. I didn't fact check that. I'm, I'm assuming that he's right on target. But if, even if he's not, even if he's a little high on the estimate, that's a phenomenal amount of biblical text devoted to the subject of poverty that we so often ignore or overlook. God cares deeply about those people who are struggling and suffering. And so in his Old Testament plan, he comes up with this marvelous way of handling the poor within the family of the Hebrew nation. It is marvelous when you look at this. 
In Leviticus, the Israelites were commanded not to harvest the edges of their fields. That was left for the poor. And so you harvested out of the middle, but you left the edges and the corners so that those who didn't have land or crops could at least get food there. Same thing with the vineyard. You, you left the edges of the vineyard. If you were harvesting and grain fell to the ground or a cluster of grapes fell to the ground, you did not pick those up. You let those who were poor who came behind pick up the stuff that had fallen on the ground so that they might have some food. Exodus 22 says our first obligation is to our neighbor's care. In, in verse 26, it says, if you take your neighbor's cloak as security for a loan, you must return it before sunset. This coat may be the only blanket your neighbor has. How can a person sleep without it? If you do not return it and your neighbor cries out to me for help, then I will hear, for I am merciful. God is saying, even if you're not merciful, I am. And you say, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You take the cloak in the morning, but you've got to give it back in the afternoon. What kind of a guarantee on a loan is that? Well, maybe, maybe this is a rhetorical device. Maybe what God is saying is, don't demand something from someone who has nothing but a coat to give. Be more concerned about the care of your neighbor before securing the loan. God even made allowance for a form of restoration called the year of Jubilee. Now, every seven years, farmers were supposed to let the land go fallow. They weren't supposed to. It was to give the ground rest. And in the year of Jubilee, you had two years. You had year 49 and you had year 50. The year of Jubilee was every 50 years where the ground was to get rest. And God promised that he would provide enough food to get them through those years so that the ground could have rest. In the year of Jubilee, all debts were canceled, all slaves were freed, and the land reverted back to the original owners or their original owner's family. That way, the inheritance that had been divided up by the nation of Israel when they'd come out of Egypt into the land of promise would always be held by the family who received it at the very beginning. At least every 50 years, it would go back to the original owner. Now, that was God's way of making sure that nobody came extremely wealthy on the backs of suffering people who had fallen on hard times. Now, now don't take this out of context. God was not objecting to great wealth. As a matter of fact, God made Solomon the wealthiest man in his day and time. God appreciated those who had great wealth because those who had great wealth could reach down and help those who were struggling. But it was the getting wealthy at the expense of somebody else's suffering that angered God. Now, we don't know if the Jewish nation ever did this. There's no record, per se, in the scriptures that they practiced the year of Jubilee. It had been a hard thing to do. Selfishly, nobody would have wanted to have done that. But it was, it, if they had done it, it would have been a great plan. Again, in Exodus, God strictly forbids the exploitation of the poor. In chapter 22, verse beginning in 21, you must not mistreat or oppress foreigners in any way. Remember, you were once foreigners yourselves in the land of Egypt. You must not exploit a widow or an orphan. If you exploit them in any way and they cry out to me, then I will certainly hear their cry. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the great part about this. God also built a part of his plan in to protect the landowner. He, he, God realizes that sometimes when you open a door and you start helping people, they can just overextend 
the help. They can take advantage of the landowner. I mean, the, the attitude is not limited to rich as opposed to poor. The, the, the attitude of wanting stuff can be spread among everybody. And so the, the poor person who comes into the field to get grain from the edges and the corners could not bring a sickle. You could only carry what you could in your hands to make a meal. That way you didn't get used to coming in and say, wow, he left a lot on the edges. I'm going to take it all. You see, there was this part about, I have an emergency need. I will help myself because that's the way God built the system, but I will not take advantage of someone else. God wanted to protect the poor, but he didn't want to create a welfare state where those who had fallen on hard times decided they were going to stay in hard times because it was a lot easier to stay in hard times and not improve themselves. That was part of God's plan. To my knowledge, there is no other plan like this in any ancient literature or, or anything quite like it today. It was a terrific way of helping the poor. But God did not tolerate laziness either. Proverbs 10.4 says, lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Proverbs 19.15, laziness brings on deep sleep and the shiftless man goes hungry. Proverbs 13.18, he who ignores discipline become, comes to poverty and shame, but whoever heeds correction is honored. And Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica these words. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Now, it didn't say if a man cannot work. He said if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. As far as you brothers never tire of doing what is right. So the biblical principle that we see here, the, the plan that God laid out from the very beginning was that the poor need help. You need to step in and help them when they can, but the poor need to do the best they can to better themselves. You need to work together as a team, each of you working to help the other until everybody is where they ought to be. Which then brings us to the next lesson, and, and here's the second lesson. God expect po expects poverty to matter to us as well. If issues of poverty matter to God, then they better matter to his people. The prince of prophets, Isaiah, preaches a bold message to the people of Judah, warning them that if they continue in their hypocrisy, they'll end up just like their northern brothers of Israel carried off into captivity. This was, this was a tough sermon. I'm telling you, when Isaiah preached this, there were no CDs of the sermon ordered that morning. Nobody was streaming this online, all right? And, and Tim already referenced chapter 58 of Isaiah. Listen to what it has to say. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and you cover yourself with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think that this will please the Lord? No. This is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Have you ever done that? Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will be as bright as noon. 
Man, that is a tough sermon, and it prompts some soul-searching questions. Like, what does God see in me regarding my compassion for the disadvantaged around me? What have I done to help instead of to hurt? If I ignore what God does not, what does that make me? If God's heart is broken for the orphans, widows, and suffering, but mine is not broken for them, does the love of God really, really reside in me? I don't like to think about those questions because I'm pretty sure I won't like the answers if I'm really honest with myself. You see, part of our problem is grounded in misunderstanding. There's usually a communication breakdown the way middle-class Americans describe poverty. When a middle-class American describes poverty, he usually describes it as a lack of food, money, clean water, medicine, housing, etc. But genuinely poor people, on the other hand, while they will mention the lack of those things, focus on a sense of shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, social isolation, and voicelessness. That's that's part of what the When Helping Hurts book is trying to communicate to us. Having taught in Moldova and seen some of the poverty there and the poor conditions and the suffering of some of the people there, this quote from a resident Moldovan caught my eye. For For a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. We are cripples. We are afraid of everything. We depend on everyone. No one needs us. We are like garbage that everyone wants to get rid of. Now, I dare say none of us in this room feel that way about people who are struggling, but that's the way they feel about themselves and their circumstances. And when we give them mere handouts, it only accentuates that feeling of shame. Now, I get it. I, I get it. You know, you, you, you go by somebody you think they need, it. there's a guilt that comes, you want to reach out and give. But I also get this too. You work in church uh, work for any length of time and you'll get burned a few times by people who appear to really have a need and they don't and they take advantage of the church and they squander the money, they run the circuit, they have a scam they're working on and suddenly you don't want to help anybody because you don't think anybody is legitimate. There are over 47 million people in the United States on food stamps and we ask the question, do all of them really need that or is somebody running a scam. You see, it's easy to become skeptical. And here's what else I've learned. The people who really genuinely need it are ashamed and embarrassed enough not to ask. And so the people that we really want to help are oftentimes the people we don't know who they are to be able to help. Creates a lot of struggle and frustration. And here's something else we need to realize. In two separate experiments, researchers determined that the mental strain on living in poverty can drop a person's IQ as much as 13 points. Just the strain of poverty. What's that like? That's like staying up all night long, not getting any sleep, and then going to school the next day or going to work the next day and trying to be productive. The research concludes that poverty itself reduces cognitive capacity because poverty-related concerns consume mental resources 
leaving less for other tasks. In other words, when, when you're poor, all of your mental bandwidth, and we only have so much cognitive bandwidth in our mind, all of it goes focused on getting what I have to have. It may be a meal for today. It may be clothes. It may be some kind of shelter. And so there's no cognitive power left in order for that person to see, how can I better myself? How can I get out of where I am and rise to the occasion? It saps them of their mental energy. And so it becomes a vicious cycle. So what can we do? Well, Robert Lupton writes that in the ancient Hebrew mindset, there were four levels of charity. The highest level of charity is to provide a job for one in need without them knowing that you provided it. A step below that is that you provided a job for a person in need, but they know you're the one that provided it. Then below that, the next lowest, is to give an anonymous gift to meet an immediate need. But the lowest level of charity, the level to be avoided at all possible cases, is to give a poor person a gift with his full knowledge that you're the one that gave the gift. In the Hebrew mind, you just never wanted to do that unless there was no other way to help. And what's the most common way we help? It's by giving something to the person so they know where the gift came from and either, either enabling them with their scam or bringing more shame and embarrassment on them to begin with. That's why, that's why I think the best way is not to do this personally, but to funnel your time, energy, and gifts through organizations like the church to help those so that it is done in a broad sense, not such a narrow sense. Uh, Steve Cor uh, Corbett of the uh, Chalmers Center speaks about three different stages. He said there is the relief stage. That's where you step in and you help somebody because they've gone through some cataclysmic kind of a situation. There's probably gonna be a lot of people uh, to the southeast and to the eastern seaboard through this snowstorm that are going to need some immediate uh, relief. So somebody's going to need to step up and help them. But that's a temporary, immediate relief. The second stage then is rehabilitation. That means coming alongside of somebody to help them get back to where they were. Not keep handing out to keep them down, but to help get them back to where they were. But the third st step, he says, is developmental. He says that's where you work with somebody, you help somebody to develop the skills and the abilities that they have so that they know that they have God-given abilities and God-given talents and that God expects them to develop those skills so that they go where they have never been before. So you give them temporary relief to get them out of the crisis situation. You help them get back to where they were and then you walk with them until they can get beyond where they have been in the past. That's a pretty good plan. And it all happens through helping them realize that God has enabled them and will be with them because God cares for the poor. Carrie Thompson, who, whose video you saw a minute ago, she, she was so gracious to help us create these videos uh, so that we could see from a different perspective. And that's one of the reasons why we really enjoy working with Habitat because they are a great organization, not to give a handout, but a hand up to people and get them on their feet so they can make something in their lives. She, she's got another beautiful illustration. I want you to hear it uh, here. Two months ago, I had the opportunity to walk through the Grand Canyon and it occurred to me that really, Living in poverty is living at the depth of that canyon, way at the base. 
where sometimes you can't even see the rim of what we call middle class. When we work with families at Habitat, what we know is that they are frequently so far down into that canyon, we can sort of appreciate some of the depth, but we don't know how to get them out. We can see that they're walking, we can see that they're trying, and we can see that they have tremendously heavy loads. But that Grand Canyon has many side canyons, and the path out is not always clear. And so at Habitat, what we do is walk next to people. We build dignity in them. Sometimes after just one stumble, a family will sprint up the side of that canyon, and they'll arrive at the rim of middle class and they'll never look back. They will soar. But more frequently, a family stumbles several times on the way. Eventually, each of these families arrives at the rim of middle class. And then, if they need us, they can return back to our classes, even after they've bought their home. They can get reminders of what it takes to stay in the middle class. More often than not, though, once you arrive at the rim and you have seen the skills that you need to stay in middle class, you can stay there. You get promoted at work, 85% of the children in Habitat houses start improving their grades at school. And our dream is that each one of these children will go on and start their adult lives in middle class. They'll go to college. They'll be giving back to our community just as it has given to them. There are ways to help without hurting. But there's a third principle we dare not overlook and that is simply this. Poverty is more than just material deficit. Poverty is more than just a material deficit. Dr. Brian Feichert, founder and CEO of the Chalmers Center writes, he says, poverty isn't just a lack of material things, it's rooted in broken relationships with God, self, others, and the rest of creation. We were created to glorify God, reflect his image, love one another, and steward the rest of creation. But the fall and sin marred what God originally created. As a result, none of us are experiencing the fullness of what God intended for us. We're all, at some level, poor. And Proverbs 22 two is right. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. And without the Lord, all of us are poor people. You see, we can be poor in a lot of ways. Attitudinally poor with a negative spirit that only sees through pessimistic eyes. You can be relationally poor, failing to see your own contributions to the broken relationships in your life and then refusing to make any kind of necessary changes that will help improve those relationships in your life. You can be socially poor, remaining aloof, looking down on others, thinking that you're somehow better than anybody else or just shy away from people and say I don't think I need that social interaction but oh you do and, and, and there's this sense of poverty that comes over you when you separate yourself from the people around you most importantly you can be spiritually poor not realizing that the choices in your life have consequences and those consequences have separated you from the God who created you now, let me remind you not one of us in this room is without sin in this world. No one is better than another when it comes to being spiritually 
lost. And by the way, there are not degrees of lostness, all right? You aren't just a little bit lost and then about halfway lost and then almost lost and then, boy, they're really lost. No, you're lost, plain and simple. Without a Savior, we're lost. We, we are all deeply in spiritual poverty, impoverished by the sin. And without a Savior, it's the worst poverty ever. I can't fix the poverty around me. You can't fix the poverty either. But we can help make a genuine difference. We just can't fix what is broken by the sins of greed, prejudice, willful ignorance, arrogance, selfishness, and a pride that says, I don't need anybody else, and I certainly don't need God. And the person who says that is the poorest person among us. And until Jesus restores what was broken, we can only do our best to make a positive difference. We can't fix it all. When we start living, however, according to the precepts and the principles that he modeled and laid out in his word, then we will begin to at least help make a difference. Don't forget this passage. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He laid aside heaven to become the poorest of the poor so that we might have the riches of eternal life. If you don't know him as your savior, then this morning, now's the time. Leave the poverty behind spiritually and be rich in Jesus Christ. Come while we stand and while we sing.